Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. All right. Welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. A couple of extra faces here. If you're listening to the show and you're not watching, you probably don't realize that yet, but we have four people on the show today. So I'm Rachel Marshall. We've got Bruce Weiner, my co-host. We've also have Lucas Marshall, my husband here, and special guest Jeremy Pryor of Family Team. So everybody, welcome to the show. Hey, everybody. Hi, Rachel. Lucas. That's uh, nice. <clears throat> It's nice to have Jeremy on the show. I mean, we we have we always have an underlying kind of a feeling that we are pro family, we are pro um, societal um, character development, integrity, and so on and so forth. And I think that's what Jeremy's going to help us relay to our listeners today. Yes, absolutely. So let me just give us a little framework for the conversation we're going to have today. So if you are a longtime listener of The Money Advantage, you hear that we talk a lot about generational wealth and this idea of having a long-range perspective into serving multiple generations into the future. And beneath all of that, you can't have generational wealth. You can't have a generational legacy if you don't have a generational family. And so as Many of you on the show know the story where I almost died. Um, That really caused Lucas and I to do a lot of intentional legacy planning and really looking at not just how do we get money to our kids so that they can survive in the future, but if something happened to us, how would we communicate the values and the meaning that's closest to us? And so that came into a book that I'm writing and our audience knows about that. We have a, a few months probably till the launch of that book. But really, as we were starting to ask the question, how do we then live into these values and this mission and this vision and these ideals that we've set up for our family and saying, these are the most important things, what's the next step? What does this look like in everyday, actual, real life? And that's really when we came across, Jeremy, Pryor and family teams and a lot of the work that you're doing on helping families craft rhythms and have a family team and think about parents as coaches and And thinking about the trajectory of where your family is going and thinking about training and having traditions and and putting things in place in your life that are these pillars and these pegs really to come back to and and build that super strong culture of a family. And Jeremy, I think the thing that we love the most was this idea that it's multi-generational. It's not just how do we have this unit of our family, but how do we have this long-term vision? So Jeremy, I'm going to let you share your background I know that you do lots of work with family teams. There's a lot of other businesses that you guys have going on, but can you kind of take us back to the beginning? Um, Where did your interest in helping families really flourish and thrive come from? Yeah. Thank thank you guys for having me. Uh, Yeah. For me, it does go all the way back to just my upbringing. I grew up in the Seattle area and it was a really... Not a, not a place where you saw a lot of flourishing families, not in the area that I was living. It looked like an experiment that had gone off the rails. And mm. a lot of my friends who were growing up there had given up the idea of family altogether. Uh, there, was, there's, there was a lot of experimenting with alternative kind of arrangements and just the idea that you know, family just doesn't work. And mm. you know, every, basically everybody you know, kind of in the cul-de-sac, there was just so much divorce, so much wreckage, so much confusion 
And, and so a lot of people just, you know, were making, you know, long-term commitments of cohabitation. Like we're going to have dogs instead of, you know, kids. There was a, a real movement in Seattle where there's, you know, more, more, it was the first city I think in America that had more dogs than, than children. Mm-hmm. And all of that honestly made sense to me. I grew up in an intact home with wonderful parents, but I just did not see um, uh, lots of examples around me of this, this being um, a high probability uh, positive thing. <laughs> And so I went from that environment and when I was 23 years old, I was doing a semester abroad in Jerusalem and man, you could not have set up a more stark contrast. I went from this place where there was very few children and very low value for, for family to a place that was just absolutely immersed in multi-generational families. And I was like, what is this? Mm-hmm. And I, I, so I started making observation after observation. Um, and you know, I, I saw so many fathers just really interested in fatherhood. Um, so much, um, and I was I was noticing this with with a lot of the Arab friends I was making, and a lot of the Jewish friends that we were, a lot of people in the uh, Orthodox Jewish community. But they all had in common: if you sat down and talked to them, they would want to talk about their kids, especially the men. I mean, they were just like tell them about this daughter and this son, and you know, and it was just, and they would love to tell their family story, and it was just totally different. I was like, what is this? Like, how 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 is it that these, particularly, like I said, that what what really shocked me was the the men were were almost as, if not more enthusiastic about family than, than the, even their wives, um, which was so bizarre coming from. So I, it was just a perfect setup for me to take a big step back and ask this question, you know, like, what is the family? Like, like what, what, how do people think differently where I grew up versus here? And a lot of people think, and what I noticed in the kind of the religious community, I was a part of the Christian community, their diagnosis was, well, you know, we just have to train men to love children more. Like they need to be, you know, they need to love children more. They need, they need to be more nurturing. They need to. And so there was all these books that came out about basically how to train men to be more loving. And one of the things I noticed was that the, the men I grew up around in Seattle were not actually less loving than these, these men in the Middle East. They, they were just, they thought differently about what family was, what fatherhood was. So that sent me on a, you know, multi-decade journey to try to really understand the different mentality of family between what was going on in the Middle East and uh, and, and almost every classical culture, and what I was experiencing in, in kind of the West, especially in the far West, where I grew up in the in the uh, in the far west of the U.S. And the basic difference that I discovered was that in in these classical cultures, they 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 essentially thought of family as a multi generational team. They they saw family as in, in its essence was multi generational. So as a father you were given something that was passed on to you by your forefathers and you were mm-hmm. passing something down to your children and your descendants. And so they, they saw family, that continuity where I grew up, nobody even knew who their great grandparents, you couldn't name even one of your great grandparents, their legacy was irrelevant to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, these ideas are very different. The way that Western people generally think about family is a springboard for individual success. A really good family sets up their children to go off and and have a great individual life, and so we that that is that is what a good family does. Um, that is not the way that that families think in in the Middle East or in classical cultures. The way they think is a, a good family is a family that works together across generations to achieve something, um, and and so in, you know that could be to achieve you know owning a business or it could be to achieve establishing their roots in some land. It could be to achieve something with regards to their faith. Um, or some combination of those things, but that legacy and that multi-generational continuity, and sometimes it's just to survive. You know, th- I think that 
multi-generational families naturally emerge in every single context where survival is at stake. If you if there's an assumption of stability, individualism tends to crop up. And then if there's enough stability over enough decades, then the culture actually forgets what family is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just, I was somebody, my story is just somebody who encountered that, was completely shocked, went from not really that interested in having kids to you know, raising kids, having, we have five children and uh, we've you know, started multiple businesses. And a lot of the things that we've done really have flown, have kind of flowed directly out of deciding to, to adopt this multi-generational team paradigm of family. You know, Jeremy, go ahead. Bruce. No, Rachel, uh, go ahead. You know, I think the first time we heard you share that story, it just resonated with me so, so much. And yet like any typical American, I think there's a lot of this way of thinking about life and family that seeps into who we are. And we don't even realize that we have yeah. adopted a paradigm that doesn't really fit well. And so my first introduction to this idea was actually reading um, Keith Whitaker and James Hughes book. I think it was either Complete Family Wealth or Family Wealth. And they talked about the ancient Iroquois who had this seven generation lens, this way of thinking about how do my decisions that I make today improve and benefit and impact seven generations ahead of me, which is like 200 years. Like I'm not going to see those people. I'm not going to live at that time, but how can I create a life that improves things for them? And and so as you're talking about this different paradigm of family, I'd like you to kind of elaborate on how do we then as Western thinking people who think about the nuclear family and we think about the unit of mom, dad, kids as the family, how do we expand that lens to really, really adopt this idea that a family is a team and we're part of a unit, not just a collection of individuals? Yeah. Well, I I think what's really tricky is that, is that, like I I mentioned in, in any place where there are there are survival things at stake. Um, you know, we saw this with a pandemic. Like the the first couple of months of the pandemic, people were collapsing back to their households, and all of a mm-hmm. sudden, things in their home and their closest relationships and the people that were in their bubble were the only people they could really rely on in that in that environment. Now that went away, you know, fairly quickly. But imagine being in a situation where that that could crop up at any point. Um, th- then of course everyone thinks multi generationally because who's going to take care of me when I'm old? I can't can't rely on anyone else. Who's going to take care of the children? You know, if something really bad were to happen, you know that you have to think multi generationally when you really are facing survival level or major major issues. The mm-hmm. problem though is that if you if you are in a culture where there is an assumption of stability, that's kind of a technical sociological distinction in, in a culture where people believe. That that their children, their grandchildren, their great grandchildren will basically live in the same level of stability, you know, free from war, free from famine, free from you know major disease issues, and the ability to pursue their individual life. When you have that kind of a mentality, then you have to choose a multi generational family or not. And this is what's really tricky. People don't realize that they're facing a, a decision. That when you are in, you, and and so we could talk about whether or not that assumption of stability is actually. A good idea. This is part of the reason why you, you look at cultures like the Jewish culture that has a much longer um, sort of memory of the kinds of disasters that can overtake you, and they will naturally build multi generational families more easily because they they don't 
they, they don't walk around with the same level of the assumption of stability that most Western people tend to have, especially in America, because um, we just have not had a major disaster here um, that has overtaken us, you know, completely eclipsed our lives for so long. Um, so, so what, what I basically have to explain to people, and I think what you have to do if you want to, you know, kind of create this, this, um, this paradigm shift is you actually have to ask people to make a choice. It is a choice. Like you could just raise, there's no laws. There's no, you could raise your, your kids to be a group of individuals and to reset every generation and to have that, you know, 80 year memory that the typical Western family has, or you could choose to be a multi-generational team, you know, and take on some things together and have that long legacy memory, but you get to choose. And so we have, you know, in our, in our culture, the vast majority of people, they, they of course uh, will choose to live out that individual life in the same way that, um, because they really, that's the default, unfortunately. And that's the reason why they, they're, they're doing it. That's the reason why more and more people are living and dying alone, because we don't realize that we're making a thousand small decisions to, to isolate ourselves from other relationships and then eventually live uh, to pursue individualism. And for a long time, we you know what was interesting is that, you know, you, you look at like, um, sort of Disney movies, um, not super recent ones. This has actually shifted in the last, uh, 10 years, but for, for most of, of our history, um, uh, in entertainment, the story was, and it really kind of, I think peaked with the little mermaid, the, the story is, you know, that the, the individual is being crushed by his or her family. Like mm -hmm. the family is so has all these expectations and all these, these things that they want from these, their children, because there's this long, you know, heavy legacy of all the things that the family and, and that, that of course, all we really want is to be free of that and to live a totally individual life and to somehow like at the end of that movie, live in a, an environment where I, I never even have to return or even see my family ever again. <laughs> you know, like that, that, that is, that is the typical Western story. It's hyper linear, you know, girl grows up in Ohio, she moves to New York, she becomes famous or get find success. And she never looks back like that, mm -hmm. that linear individual progression is, is kind of the Western story. And so people have that story deep down inside. They don't want to rob their children of that. Uh, they, they believe it at a intuitive level. And so they have to take a minute and take a step back and say, okay, guys, that, that leads a, to a very dark place. Uh, ultimately, when you think that that's the, the main trajectory in life, that, that, is a, that is a trajectory away from relationships, away from meaning, away from purpose. And it does not make any sense of the way that families design things like a lifelong covenant. That does not make any sense in a world in which my individual freedom and desires are absolutely paramount and must never be questioned. And so, um, so we just haven't thought deeply enough about this because this is a fairly new problem. It's really the last hundred years where we've had this assumption of stability, where we've seen that just break down multi-generational families so predictably that a lot of people have never even met a multi-generational family. Like they, they never even thought about building one. Um, they didn't even know that was an option. And that was my story. I didn't even know that was an option. Once, once it was introduced to me by these families in the Middle East, I was like, okay, I'm going to pick that. But mm -hmm. had I never met those families, I would absolutely be building you know, everything for the, for the sake of individualism, hyper-individualism. I believed in that. That was, the, that was the water I swam in. Those were the stories that I consumed. And so just people are unaware. And so I think the first basic you know, a way that we, we have to introduce this to people um, to answer your question, is that people have to be actually informed that you will, if you go on default, build an individualistic uh, family, a springboard for individual success. That's okay. You can do that. You know, you're perfectly free to do that. There is another option. 
you mm-hmm. can instead build a multi multi generational family. There's so much packed into that, and I'm like, I don't want to monopolize the conversation. Bruce and Lucas just uh, jumped right in if you if you want to, but just as I'm hearing you talk about that assumption of stability, I mean, when we Bruce, when we're ever looking at somebody and we say, you know, you really need life insurance, you need an estate plan, you need to be thinking about your legacy, and that's not something that normally people just walk around thinking about on a regular basis and they don't want to think about those things because it's weighty it's hard it's it's uncomfortable and yet at the same time we realize the person who goes through a instability moment in their own life when they realize hey look my life's not guaranteed i mean that's what happened to me personally when all of a sudden we said i'm super healthy and amazing and now i had this near death experience nothing's guaranteed and so if if my next moment, my next day is not guaranteed by the grace of God. I'll be here for the next, you know, 80 years or so. I don't think I can live that long, but um, really when, when we look at that, we realize I have to do something about this instability so that I can have as much certainty as possible in light of that circumstance. But yeah, go ahead. So in light of uh, the hyper individualism, how do you kind of get that back to the middle, like a, like a teeter totter, so to speak, and like balance the family you know, and the individual members that make up the family, but, you know, not, not crushing one over the other, but respecting both, but also there's some give and take there. It's not like a, not necessarily a 50, 50, but it's definitely not a, you know, 90, 10 either. So how do you, how do you balance that? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. Cause there, there is definitely a huge problem on the other side of this, 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 that teeter totter you described. And yeah, so the, in our culture, we struggle with hyper individualism, and other cultures they struggle with hyper familyism, where the individual doesn't matter. And um, I, I, to me, the way that I've worked this out is is that I believe that the individual um, needs to be sovereign, and in, in in that they need to make the decision, but that then they need to be called to voluntarily sacrifice for the family team. So that's the order in which I think is most healthy. Um, and so what we what we tend to think is either. The individual is sovereign and therefore the family is is not valuable. And if I ever have to sacrifice for the sake of my family team, then that's an inappropriate ask of me. It's in, in, imputing on my individualism and it's not it's not worth it because indiv- my, my individualism is more important than my family or in other cultures where they are so obsessed with family that the individual can be absolutely crushed under the weight and needs of the family. And there is no, uh, there's no kind of compunction about the way in which that's affecting the individual. And so I, I feel like the right balance is yes, individuals should have should have the freedom to make this decision, and then they ought to be inspired to voluntarily make sacrifices for the family. Um, so we could tease that out, but that, I, I think that's the most healthy. So in our family, I realize that that really kind of starts with me. Like I, my children have to see me making voluntary sacrifices of my individualism for the sake of the family team, mm-hmm. and as they see that experience, they can make that decision or not make that decision. They can go on their own journey towards understanding how valuable this is and choosing to sacrifice for it. And we'll, we'll have very real conversations where, you know, there are, there are certainly times in our children's life where it's like, hey, I don't know what the right decision is, is here for you. This is what would probably be best for the family. This is what's best for you. You know, I need you to really, you know, think about that decision and make, make that decision. And our kids have, you know, made lots of decisions on both sides of that equation. And I expect that, but I. But one of the things that's been really exciting is to see that there is a consistent pattern of being comfortable with making family-oriented uh, decisions. But again, this needs to be done in, a, in an environment in which they feel very free to go either way. We'll love you either way. We'll support you either way. 
Um, but I, I want you to be captured by the beauty of what the, the, what this means. You know, we live with my grandparents, uh, with my parents and my grandma, like we, we have this, you know, big family meal we do every, um, every, uh, every year, every, um, every week. And, but there was one year where my grandmother lived with us. Uh, I lived near us uh, just up the street. And so she was able to come to that meal. And at that meal, she was spanning seven generations, right? So she could remember, um, you know, three generations that were, uh, that were, um, and she was in her nineties, you know, uh, from before her. And then she was seeing four generations downstream mm. from her. And so Beautiful. when your kids are sitting at a table and they, they have a family member who's spanning seven generations and we, you know, tell family stories at this meal, this is the kind of thing that, that causes children to go, this matters. Like, I really care about this. Like, this is so powerful, so meaningful. They, they, they begin to see, um, again, that, that, that the beauty of, of family and the way it's designed and the way that multi-generational families are structured. And so when that captures their heart, um, then they're going to make different, they're going to make different decisions about their life than they otherwise would have. And that, that's okay. Again, as in, if it's okay for an individual to make a decision to sacrifice family um, for the sake of, of their personal goals, it's to, it should also be okay for an individual to choose to sacrifice um, in order to serve and love the family. That's what, really what, valuable. Go ahead, Bruce. What's interesting is I, I don't, <clears throat> I, I need to know more about what you think about it. It's the default to individualism. Now, the default to individualism may be more of a societal, uh, right. uh, uh, that a society has put on because I'm a biologist by education and I would say more towards a tribal situation in 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 uh, all organisms generally is better so then you have to say how did that change well going from more of a rural uh dis dis dispersion of people to more of a city focus this uh of p dispersion of people was probably the first time because farmers had large families to help run the family farm right and then as they became more and more rural then, then I want to blame um, our fiscal policy on in, on inflation. Like, uh, well, even before that, let's get back to like World War II, and then uh, we come out of World War II, and the economy was actually doing well. So even though we were moving towards more of a city life, the economy was doing well because, and so now we started going to a suburban lifestyle. But there's enough resources to have big families. Right. In that situation. But then because of our monetary policies, then throughout the sixties uh, it started to break down and we saw a lot of turmoil in the sixties. Uh, I can't I was born and raised in the sixties, but I can't remember a lot of the actual emotional field of turmoil. But um, then you had Richard Nixon taking us off the gold standard, and that caused hyperinflation, which we're about to see now, mm -hmm. to the point then people are turning and saying there's a variety of reasons why I need to stand up for myself because I don't even know if my family's going to be around because uh, there's a lot of people that are never even going to know their grandparents because we're delaying maturity. We're delaying the, the, the thought of marriage. We're delaying the thought of having kids because some, somehow we're supposed to save the planet by having fewer people on it. And all those ideas are actually permeating to the fact that 
we, we think the individual is the most important thing. And actually, if we go back to our biological need, or our tribal needs, the family is the most important thing. So, Jeremy, I don't know if I sparked any kind of thoughts in your mind yeah. on, on those, but I'd like to hear your comments. Well, that, that, that kind of um, sort of uh, devolution of the family, one, one of the greatest uh, ex- examples of that is this. there's a movie, I don't know if you guys have ever seen it, I recommend that anybody watch, it's called Avalon, and it kind of walks through exactly what you just described. There's this ama- it's a family that's of immigrants who you know come, I think, to Philadelphia, their brothers are so close. They they've have, have all this memory from the old country. They work together as a team. They start businesses. And then basically the movie goes on for another like 50, 60 years. And you watch the family just absolutely disintegrate, move to the suburbs. They get, they, you know, before they had, to, they had to live together. They had to save money to start these businesses. Now they're, you know, they're kind of growing wealth. They, they show there's one scene where, you know, the, um, you know, that this next branch of the family, they're all like with their TV trays in the sixties in front of a television set, you know, just like, um, just giving into technology, you just watch the, the effects of this, this beautiful multi-generational family just get destroyed by abundance essentially, you know, and by consumerism. Um, so yeah, we have a lot of, there's a lot of pressure, um, to, to, there's a lot of forces that I agree with what you're saying. Um, I think I think that multi-generational family is the most natural state of the family. Um, I think that what we are facing are unusual forces that are making that making the other kind of family, this springboard for individual success, the default now. And I think that is a historically unusual thing. And there are people, historians of the family who have looked at this and said, this is hi- this is highly unusual. And it, 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 it usually um, precedes the destruction of a civilization or a society or a culture. Um, this is kind of a preceding um, one of the things that precedes uh, that that kind of a thing because you know when you when you're looking at what actually causes um, any kind of thing to to any kind of idea to persist, oftentimes whoever's got the best longest term idea wins, right? So mm-hmm. if you've got a great long term vision and you're able to sacrifice toward that vision for the longest amount of time, then over time you're going to those ideas tend to outlast very short term. Um, thinking and and so this idea is a very long term idea and so what tends to happen in societies like ours is the very tiny handful of families that are thinking multi generationally will garner an un, a larger and larger and a more and more unusual share of of influence and resources and this has happened with because like of all the immigrant families that have come to America usually it takes about three generations for an immigrant family to to go totally hyper individual it's very confusing for these poor immigrant parents who 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 value family so much and who, who treasure their parents and grandparents and they come to this country and then they sacrifice their entire lives to give their children, you know, a leg up because they have a multi-generational vision and then their children become completely rooted in a hyper-individualistic way of looking at the world because of um, the influence of Western stories and Western ideas. And then there, there really isn't a, a good language to communicate what's going on between the uh, first generation family and the second generation family. And usually that second generation family will raise their kids to be total Western individuals. And so then the multi-generational family goes extinct. Um, there's a few exceptions to that. One of the, you know, one of the, one of the exceptions to that is uh, our Jewish families, like I mentioned before. Now, mm-hmm. most Jewish families still do go on that same journey towards hyper-individualism, but, but there's an unusually high percentage of them that, that, that maintain a multi-generational um, perspective on family. And I think that that's, that directly contributes to the fact that 
they're less than 2% of the population of the US, but they they own, it's estimated to be about 40% of the financial resources because they think mm-hmm. long-term. Um, and so that's why I would encourage people to understand that, yeah, you can, um, it's not that difficult to, to establish a powerful legacy if you have a hundred year horizon, right? Mm-hmm. There's so much you can do in a hundred years. But yeah. if you're hyper individualistic and you're consumeristic, who cares about a hundred years? I can make sure your children have ten million dollars in a hundred years. Well, you know, Western person, like, I want that. I want ten million dollars now. Like, mm-hmm. I want that. You know, like, and so they're not going to sacrifice to give that to their grandchildren and to think about that third generation if they've been absolutely, um, you know, uh, completely uh, uh, like saturated in in individualistic kind of way of thinking. Um, well, and so we're just talking through this. I mean, there's so much for me personally, as I think about it, I mean, I think everyone probably craves the ability to say my great, great grandfather did this. And I'm proud of that legacy that I have because of what he did. I think we all want to be sitting at that Thanksgiving table and have all the families together and laughter. And it's, it's amazing. It's a wonderful time of being together. I think deep down, we really want that. And yet I don't think it's as common of an experience. And I think somehow multi-generational family almost might feel like an intangible or this like great idea that how in the world could I actually get there? So why try? And I wonder how much of that, I mean, I, I think it's important that we've spent so much time on this idea of why do we why is it valuable to craft this multi-generational family? Because I think that's the hardest part. I think once you make that decision, once you've adopted that mindset or said, I'm going to do everything possible. Well, now there's so many tools and tactics and, and things you can do with your schedule and all of the, all the tangible stuff then starts making sense. But until you make that leap over into saying, I want to personally be responsible for creating a multi-generational family, starting with me, whether or not it came from my grandparents and great grandparents, whether or not I have resources that have been an inheritance passed down and passed down and passed down through generations, which most of us are completely unfamiliar with that idea either, whether or not there's been values passed down and passed down and stories that have been passed down. I think we all desire to be able to say, I'm part of something that amazing. Yeah, I think the it's key meaningful. distinction is the hyper, you say hyper individualism, because like yeah. in our family, <clears throat> we have eight family values that we have, you know, at the head of our table on the wall. But the first three, we call our most core basic family rules. And the first one is that we say we value freedom, but then there's two limitations. One is responsibility. And the second one is loving mutual respect. So there has to be boundaries put around that either individualism or that freedom to bring it into a perspective that is, yes, you can be hyper individualistic, but then you're doing it's to your betterment at the detriment of other people, that's not healthy. It's not healthy even in society, let alone in family. So it's like you got to put those boundaries around it that bring it into that perspective that actually is considering everybody and um, allows for um, healthy flourishing of everyone. I don't really think that the hyper individual isn't really flourishing. So like if the goal right. should be that every individual member is flourishing, but for them to flourish, the family has to be, it has to go both ways. It's, it's like, yes. a, yeah. Yeah. That's, that, that's why I think we actually have all of these intuitions inside of us around one other category that's not family related. And that is the team. And so it, what's fascinating is if you're, you know, if you're in a classroom, um, it's understood in the classroom, you should be thinking about yourself as an individual. You should be like making sure you're getting your grades on the tests you know, um, and so do your work. But as soon as you join a team, all of the intuitions start to reverse, right? 
And so someone's like, why aren't you, why are you working? Why are you helping your teammate? Like, why aren't you like you, there's like, why are you sacrificing? Like everyone else is working hard. Like there's a, there's a completely different set of intuitions that come when you realize that what you're a part of is a team. And so we have in the West accidentally, I mean, I don't think it was intentional, but I think it really came through some of the forces we've been describing. We, we actually began to believe that the, that the, the family is a, is a collection of individuals. And so all the intuit, all the individual intuitions, which is, you know, how, let's protect everyone's individual interests. That's what's really, that's really is what's at stake became the paradigm, the lens through which we lead our families. And, and so if, if, if people like I, I ran this thought experiment, um, I, I was talking to a group of dads and I said, imagine, um, now we know there's an epidemic of fatherlessness in the West. It's been well-documented 60% of, of children today grow up at least for part of their, their life in a house outside of the house of their biological father. Uh, we've never seen that in another culture in history that we know of. I mean, it's what is going on. It's such an enormous crisis. And I said, guys, let, let's, let's do a thought experiment. Imagine if, um, if we passed a law that said that every single, uh, every single Saturday morning, a father would have to um, coach his children to compete in some you know, age-appropriate sport against other family teams and that the the results of this this competition you know that would take place every saturday morning for a couple hours would be made public um if you did that if that happened i don't think we should pass that law but it's a thought experiment that says that all, all of a sudden a, a series of things would, would occur overnight every father would think of himself as a coach which is really what fatherhood was historically that that's far closer to what a father looked like historically than than the modern father um, and then every father would think about his his family like a team. And so he would have to coach his kids to work together, to build skills. You know, and I saw this firsthand. My my son went out to for football when he was seven years old. Um, and and so I took him to to this uh, this football practice. And um and I, I was he didn't know anything about football. And so I was just like walking him over. And as I was walking him over, three fathers descended upon my son. Like, and they began to train him in every single aspect of the sport, like how, like the stances, everything, like they were so dialed in to what he was doing and how he was doing it. And I was sitting there looking at this and saying, we, we have misdiagnosed the problem. It's not that um, men don't like children. Like, that's what we think. That's, that's why fathers are abandoning their families because it's because fathers don't know their coaches. That's why fathers don't know their leading teams. They think that what they're doing is they're competing with a, another group of individuals for what we could, could imagine what, what happens if the, if the family is just a group of individuals and then you give parents extra power, what are they going to do with that power? If the goal is my individual fulfillment, of course, I'm going to use my power to get my individual fulfillment. And this is why children suffer terribly in Western families and in the way that the kind of culture we've created, because, because you have that power for a different reason. You have that power in order to lead and coach a team. That's why you have the power. Um, and so it's, it's, it's kind of like, we, we, that's, why, that's why I think it's so important to understand that if, if, if the family is a group of individuals, the family is a bad experiment. It's a poorly designed thing. And this is where people are beginning to realize this. And because they don't understand the, the true design of the family, they're like, well, we got to get rid of the you know, nuclear family. And there's even been increasing calls by organizations to destroy the nuclear family. And their reasoning is sound. Their reasoning is that if you really play this out, there's no way that an individual 
how does this child, how are they going to get any kind of equality of, of the resources when you put them in a family unit like that? Like there, there, there will always be such inequality across our entire society because if, if one parent, if there's one family where the parents are really pouring into their children, that child's going to have enormous privileges over all mm-hmm. the other children. Um, and, and so we got to disrupt this entire system because it leads to inequality. And if we want hyper-individualism to, to be the basic rule, and therefore that, that would give rise to this, this idea of equality, then the family is, is going to always be a massive impediment to that. And I think that instead of building stronger families, we're trying to destroy those things. And it, again, it makes sense if you kind of play out the logic. We've already been walking down this path of hyper-individualism. And so we have to begin to pivot over to team. Uh, and so mm-hmm. that's, that, that is, I think, that the move that we have to make. And when you start to think of a family as a team, then, of course, the generational component of family makes a lot more sense. Why we have grandparents, why we have extended family, why we have you know, children and grandchildren. That is just so beautiful. The whole idea that we need other people in our family. We need a team. I mean, even just as you're talking about the the inequality, I mean, it can be challenging and difficult to see that there are people who don't have access to this kind of a, a loving parent coach to be able to guide and direct them and and teach them what they need to learn so that they can be responsible, so they can have character, so they can become everything that they're meant to be, which is a huge piece of helping them flourish, right? It's not just giving them money and resources. That's not going to help them succeed. But if you are training them in this character and upbringing and giving them resources that is access to fully develop themselves, that is an amazing privilege and advantage. So then the question is, how do you solve it? Do you take away the advantage from the advantaged or do you find a way to help other people become those coaches so that more children can have that thriving environment? And and I can see clearly that you're taking that position of saying, how do I train and teach more parents to really provide the best to their kids? Yeah. That, I think that, that is the, the, the most reliable path to, to seeing more human flourishing in our society is that we have to re we have to understand what this design of the family is. And so it's so basic and it affects so many people and, and so many vulnerable people in so many ways that if you, if we continue to work out a model of family that is dysfunctional by nature, like the dysfunctional family, the idea is sort of become a meme. Like, of course, every family is dysfunctional. That's not true. There are all kinds of functioning families. The, the reason why that's, that's sort of becoming an assumption is because when you, when you persistently go against the design, of course, every one of those families is going to be dysfunctional. Um, that's the, almost the definition of dysfunction. To not function in the way that that the that the actual um, thing was designed in it in its in its inception, and so I think part of this is we yeah, we just have to introduce people to the fact that the family has a design and it's beautiful and it works and it's highly functional. But if you don't understand the design and you continuously violate it, then of course it will devolve into dysfunction. Mm-hmm. Right, but it also it's a way for a person to feel good about the defunct dysfunction in their family. Right. If they just say, well, everybody has dysfunction, it's similar to when a person says, oh, well, I lost a bunch of money in the stock market, but that's because everybody lost a bunch right. of money in the stock market. And I say, oh, no, that's not true. <laughs> my, my clients didn't because they weren't actually in the stock market. You know, They were right. doing other things with their money, uh, which is also another 
trait that a lot of uh, Jewish families have yep. is that they, they act. Yes. And so, you know, what's interesting, Jeremy, uh, you put a little tear in my eye when you started talking about football because I'm an old football player, played in college, a coach for 15 years. And there was this movement several years ago about away from it because people think, oh, it's so barbaric and so on and so forth. But the life lessons that you learn in, in football are about the team or the and coaches always are are talking about the family. I mean, they, yeah. they talk about the being part of the family. A basketball team, you they talk about it too, but you can get away with it because you can have just a couple of good players because you only forty percent of your team could be good and you can be successful. But in football, because you have eleven and they yeah. all have different roles, yeah. like like soccer, there's eleven, but basically as long as you can kick the ball <laughs> and go somewhere else, <laughs> yes. it's the same role. I think I like it. Yes, but football, they all have different roles. And you can actually take yeah. that particular player that's not very good at something and put him into something else that they're they're good at, and then the, then the entire team thrives. Yes. And it's it's very similar to what you were talking about with the family. What what does my heart pour, or I feel poorly about when I talk to families is this feeling of you know well we know we all know suicide rate is is spiking at its highest all time. And yet, like you say, we're moving towards more individualism. Right. And so that people think, well, that's to let those people find them for their meaning, find their purpose. Right. But obviously, that is not the meaning or the purpose. The purpose, well, I shouldn't say obviously, because we haven't done any research on this, but you would think that anecdotally, that's not the way to, it should be going because right. we move back towards a family unit. Uh, we, we may have less suicide because people that is the meaning the family is right. the meaning you're giving up a little bit of your individualistic characteristics for the family a little right. bit of your individualistic right. characteristics that's right yeah we you know there's there's been kind of a, a new discovery that addiction the root of addiction is really isolation um mm -hmm. and and so if you you know put people in into very isolated circumstances then it's just like they, you know, this experiment on rats, you, you put rats into an isolated situation, they'll take drugs. You put them in, you know, an amazing situation with lots of other rats, they won't. They voluntarily choose not to. Uh, and so we don't, we didn't realize that we were facing, an, you know, this epidemic of, of isolation through the, the in, kind of the hyper individualism we've been describing. And so, yes, yeah, so many of our problems root back to a lack of connection, a lack of meaning. And those things are, are the family's rich in both of those areas. And so the fact that the family's been disintegrating and we've been facing um, these, these epidemics of, of, uh, of addiction because of the lack of connection and meaning, um, that, that's, that's understandable. Um, but for some reason, you guys, that, that one thing that's really baffled me is that this, isn't, this is not the front and center thing that we're talking about as, as a solution. This, is, this gets to the root of the problem. How else are you going to create a society of people that are connected and, and have lives full of meaning? And what's so incredible is that that every person is a part of a multi-generational family line. It is so powerful to when you start to understand what's been given to you and what you can then pass on to your children and grandchildren. You get to experience the depth of that meaning. We 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 do a, a family meal, multi-generational family meal every week. And uh, my my wife's uh, father, before he died, he died about five years ago. He would come, you know, every single week. And then there was a, there was a sort of a predictable time. 
Um, um, I never knew when it would happen, but, but sometime during the evening and, and we'd have this meal, we would bless all the kids. We would, you know, tell family stories, we'd play games. You know, we just have, we just say, this is a timeless, this is, we're just going to experience family. Everyone's either a son or a daughter or a father or a mother at this table. And some point during the evening, he would start to tear up almost every, you know, every single week. Um, and, and when I watched that happen to him, I knew what was going on. He was being, he was, that was the experience of being overwhelmed by meaning. He, mm-hmm. he, cause he remembered his father and his grandfather, he, he, and he was seeing his grandchildren and he was seeing the generations play out. And from his vantage point as 70 years old, he was seeing the, all of these things and yeah, he couldn't, how can you contain it just sort of overflows, you know, mm-hmm. and this is why in the Bible in, Gen- in Psalm 128, it gives a description of the good life, which is someday may you be surrounded. May you see your children's children. Like it really, it, it pictures a grandfather surrounded by the generations at a table as being the, the pinnacle of life. And, and, you know, I, what I was told the pinnacle of life, I don't know if you guys were ever told the pinnacle of life, but I was definitely told, I remember I graduated from high school, you know, nobody, nobody ha- had told me what the pinnacle was yet, but somebody kind of grabbed me over, you know, around um, my shoulders and said, Jeremy, I got to tell you something, you know, you're about to go to college and just keep in mind that this, this is the best life it will ever be. Like you were about to experience the best years of your life. Yeah, so our culture believes life, the probably. best, yeah, the best years of your life are when you are completely isolated from your family when you have total freedom to indulge your own personal, individual, hedonistic desires, that is the pinnacle of life. And so when we are telling people that that is the good life, as opposed to a grandfather surrounded by his generations or a grandmother, like, mm-hmm. it's a, like you can understand what's going on in our culture. We are pointing people towards a story that we know is broken and is the mm-hmm. wrong one. And it doesn't lead to meaning or fulfillment. It leads to isolation, lack of connection, and lack of meaning. Go ahead, Lucas. No, I was Lucas, gonna say on the uh, on the end of um the other end of life, I feel like you also get that uh this false myth that like you're just gonna then re- quote retire, which I don't like we don't like that word retire at all, but you're gonna retire and just sit on the beach and spend dwindle all your assets uh right. so that you can live the high life till you till you die on right. you know, just drinking or whatever leisurely as if um <clears throat> like that's that's something to look forward to and uh which is the same thing it's still more isolated and you're not really thinking and there's no thought to the future generations right. just enjoying some kind of a permanent vacation and that's not right. the contribution that gives that meaning and sense of purpose right. and togetherness and relationship that really makes life so rich that's right. Yeah. Uh, Jeremy, My- I feel like we could talk all day and, and we're getting really close to the top of the hour here. Um, yeah. Oh, go ahead, Bruce. You had a well, thought too you want to share. Yeah, this is, this is a little bit off the, well, I don't know if it's off the subject, but Jeremy, uh, I like kind of closing thoughts on really how you balance. I, we, I, we touched on this at the very beginning, how you balance that individualism and the family. I just recently started watching the television streaming series. Yellowstone, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners, and that they're so hyper focused on the family, they're actually crushing right. the individualism of the family, and it causes all kinds of problems within the family. So it can actually go in the other direction, and that's probably what has what has actually happened 
Um, well, there's there's some probably some uh, government intervention too that has caused that. But if you could just kind of close on your thoughts of that balance uh, yeah. in, uh, before individualism and family. Yeah. Well, I'd like to say too that you know Yellowstone. It's fascinating if you just go on, especially these multi-episode uh, series that are really popular right now and count how many of them center around a multi-generational family. Um, you know, it's, it, you know, I, I, I don't, growing up, I don't know if I knew a single family that looked anything like any of those families I'm seeing on, in those series, but, but this is so interesting to watch because there's so much meaning and yeah, they're screwing each other up like crazy in those series. That's very dramatic and fun to watch very entertaining, but it's also like, it's also entertaining and interesting because it's so meaningful. Like, oh my gosh, look at that father. What he just said to his 35 year old daughter. Wow. Like that's crazy. Like how interesting now most like, you know, Lucas, you were saying most, most of the way that we talk about is that father wouldn't be working with this 35 year old daughter. That father would be on a beach or on a golf course somewhere, you know, and living his best life apart from his, his family. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think that it's, uh, it's, it's, I don't think we're really totally understanding the, uh, th- that, that tension that I think our, our culture actually is struggling with. Like there's a, the latest Disney movie in Kanto, which was, I don't mm-hmm. know if you guys have seen it. It's a fascinating yeah. movie. Girls, yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. It's like, you know, it's like, so there, there is this real interest in multi-generational family. You see it in, in that. And, and I would say that that movie actually is, is really, really trying to get at Bruce, the answer to your question. The entire movie is trying to answer the question. So in the movie, um, all of the kids are given a special gift. So they all have so much as individuals to contribute. But then the family also has this, you know, um, powerful identity and massive multi-generational legacy that's just beautiful and blessing this whole village. Like the whole village is essentially the, you know, the overflow of the, the love and the gifting of this one multi-generational family. Um, and so the entire show centers on this one kid who can't figure out what her gift is. And so she's sacrificing, sacrificing, sacrificing for the family, you know, but, but there's this question that, that, that grows, you know, over the course of the film. And then what about her? Like, when is the family going to love her for who she is? You know, despite that she doesn't have one of these crazy uh, gifts. And, and I do think that that, that balance and that challenge is the ultimate challenge uh, of family life um, is, is that we cannot leave any of our kids behind and just say, Oh, you know, you're, um, you know, you're, you are going to be sacrificed on the, on the altar of the family. Like that is not a beautiful story. Um, we need to make sure that our family, our, our identity, the family vision, what we're doing as a family is broad enough to encompass all, all that the family is. And if, if, you know, God were to bless your family with a child who has a gift that is very different than what the family needs today, see that as a massive opportunity to expand the family vision to mm-hmm. encompass that though, that gifting, and so that whatever he or she does to further, um, you know, the things that she feels or he feels called to do in their life, that our family's behind you hundred percent. Like we're, you're going to be so much, you're going to go so much farther because we're we're going to be as a team working to do things together. Um, and so there's a dynamic there, and I do think that you know, I think football. I was agreeing with you, Bruce, hundred percent. Like that's a great place to go to, to to see these analogies play out just in real time. You know. Um, a football team essentially also is, you know, almost every minute of the practice in the game is the tension between those two things, you know, is, is you're watching individuals sacrifice so much to get this team forward. 
And then you're, but then, then you feel terrible if the team doesn't turn around and, and say something amazing about those individuals. Like, look at them, look at what they did. Like, let's talk about them. That lineman, he's amazing. He blocked over and over and over and did the hard work. Like if, if that never happens, if they're not properly rewarded um, as an individual for what they did for the team, like that's not a great story. Nobody wants to be part of that. So, so that balance is very challenging, but you know, that's why we play sports. That's why we, that they're basically simulations for how to, how to find that balance. Cause that is really challenging. You know, if we want to do the best thing for our kids, it's not just providing opportunity and resources, it's providing the relationships and yes. how much more beautiful thing could we give them than generations of relationships before them. And so right. I think there's, there's so much packed into this. I think we could talk again for the whole weekend, but uh, I think sometimes maybe we have seen families do this poorly. Maybe we've seen families be too overbearing, but don't let that one uh, maybe right. bad apple ruin your entire vision of what your family could be. I think all of us have this craving and longing to have a stronger family, to have more love and purpose and meaning, more connection, more generationalness, looking backwards and looking forward in our family. And if we can follow that longing, I think there's just so many things that we can do to really strengthen the family. So, um, Jeremy, if we can do this and wrap this all into the next couple of minutes, I would mm -hmm. like for you um, just to highlight maybe a few of the things that you guys are doing and teaching, whether that be training and family rhythms and even um, Shabbat or the Sabbath meal, you mentioned a, a family um, weekly meal. And then from there, can you just share some of the, the tools and resources that you guys provide at family teams and through through the rest of your work that helps families really be able to step into walking out this multi-generational family team. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I would say that first of all, on the tool side, it's important for everyone to understand that virtually every tool we have in society is designed for the individual. So whether you go to you know churches, you're, you're going to separate by age group, schools, you're going to separate by age group, shopping today now is separated by age group, teams are separated by age group. You don't see families working together. And so, um, and so there's not a lot of avenues for that. And so one of the things like we had to do was like, we got involved in sports and uh, lots of different activities that allowed us to do that as a family. Those are hard to find. And we had to do a lot of creative things to do that. Um, but the, the, those are the tools are out there, but it's under, it's really helpful to understand that, that most of the tools that enrich our children are designed to build them up as individuals. Where are we going to go to find things that will help us, you know, help build us up as a family team to work together, to learn to work as a unit, um, that that is pretty rare. Um, and then the, you mentioned uh, Rachel, like we do a we do a weekly meal, and you you said earlier you talked about like that Thanksgiving meal. One of the problems with the West is that we have basically two shots at these multi generational meals a year, usually our Thanksgiving meal and maybe a Christmas dinner, and um, and you know they're kind of now a meme because that is not enough. And if you, if that's the only two things you're doing, oftentimes those are really awkward because you're like, who are these people? We shouldn't we be closer and like, Oh my gosh, you believe that. And okay, well, how quickly can I get out of here? Okay. So that, that is, that's a, that, that's kind of a bad experience. Um, but what I noticed is like in, in Israel, for example, um, everyone went to their parents' house every Friday night. It was like every week. Now that's a different experience because if you're going every single week, and you're enjoying a, a, a really deep, epic, multi-generational family meal with your, with your family every single week, then, then you're going to be in a very different place. Like You won't be able to stop a multi-generational family 
from emerging if you do it every single week and your mm -hmm. kids as they grow up and have kids that they want to bring their kids to that meal because it was so meaningful to them when they were kids so we, we would design a meal that our kids would absolutely love they would like remind us if we forgot you know that had special drinks and you know, we did we, we made it the most we were trying to make it the most fun thing they ever did because our whole goal was that the, the smells and and the uh, the food and the the all the associations with it would be so rich that they would want to bring you know their kids to this meal and we'd have this experience that we had with a lot of families when we lived in israel um and so i would say that that is the best tool i know if you choose to craft a really amazing epic multi-generational family meal every single week um and really hold on to that and and can can, can and that takes a lot of persistence to establish that but if you do i i will tell you it, it is highly it's almost impossible to stop a multi-generational family from starting because those connections are just too rich. There's just too many good conversations, too many opportunities to work through things, too much going on there, too much, too many good memories, especially if you learn how to craft it, to tell good stories, craft an environment where people are honored, you know, where people are relaxed. Um, man, yeah, that, and that's how they do it in Israel. Uh, and then, so we learned from them about this sort of Friday night uh, Sabbath meal that we, we do and we've been practicing as a family for about 15 years. And, uh, and that has really made a big difference um, in terms of like other places to go. So uh, we, yeah, familyteams.com is where I, I hang out. Um, uh, me uh, and my wife, our kids, um, our partners, Jeff and Alyssa Bethke, and we run um, a lot of different courses out of there. We have a, a calendar that, that is designed around helping you create a, a family team meeting every single week. Um, and probably the best place to start is we do something called the Family Teams Weekend, which is um, which is a, uh, a two-day event where we, we introduce people to this paradigm at a, in a really deep environment, answer a lot of questions, give you the, the first three tools um, that will really help you start your multi-generational family um, and, and really help you launch into this trajectory, give you the time as a couple to really process what, what will require to make this shift. And so, um, and so our next one is going to be in Tampa, Florida. Um, and it's uh, going to be in October. You can go on familyteams.com and get the dates and all the information um, for that event. That's awesome. Thank you for that invitation. And so all the details and information is at familyteams.com for that event That's as right. well, correct? Yes. Okay. <clears throat> awesome. Jeremy, this has been so rewarding to be able to talk with you in person. Go ahead. I was going to say, uh, Rachel and I have uh, gone through both of the courses that you oh, yeah. uh, have on Family Teams. Um, yeah. So there's awesome. one course on family rhythms and mm -hmm. that's extremely helpful. And just the idea of having a consistent, repeatable process that helps you thrive and flourish as a family, not just, um, you know, pick each thing every day being brand new and chaotic and, yeah. and is thing, are things going to work out or not, but really having a pattern and a system in your life that's been extremely valuable. And then there's the fatherhood, um, course yeah. as well. I can't remember the name. The skill um, of fatherhood yeah. yes. and, the, and the other one you're referring to, Rachel, is the seven-day family. Yeah, yes. those are yes. both available. Yeah, yep. both, both really amazing. Great, really great courses, especially if you um, um, have children still in the house. Uh, very good for bringing a lot of peace to the home and um, uh, more enjoyment. So Awesome. Yeah, we try to make it super together. practical. Yeah. Awesome. And I Thank will you. point out as well that uh, I loved a fatherhood course, so I'm not a father, but clearly it was extremely <laughs> valuable. Yeah. So. Awesome. so yes, thank you so much, Jeremy, for being with us today. Um, I highly encourage any of our listeners who who maybe this conversation has resonated with 
to go check out familyteams.com, plug into the resources. You guys have a podcast as well. I know that um, several podcasts, we've listened to most of those as well. Um, I know there's family teams, there's five minute fatherhood, there's dads building teams. Um, Yeah, there's a family teams podcast. We're going to, we're about to release a season on how to craft a family friendly day of rest. Mm. Um, Tomorrow, I'm going to interview some of my friends who are Orthodox Jews in Israel and I've been doing this multi-generationally. So I'm going to try to collect all the tools I possibly can for how to craft that day of rest uh, because that's a really big part of the rhythms that one of the rhythms that we recommend. And uh, we're going to be releasing that, um, you know, probably about four to six weeks on, on that podcast. That's awesome. And that actually brought up another thought. Can you share as well? I know you take um, families on trips over to Israel as yes. as providing tours as well. Can you just m- mention that briefly? Sure. Yeah. So we're probably going to, it looks like we're going to be able to get back finally. It's been so tough with COVID, but January, 2023, we're going to be going on a tour to Israel. Uh, so the family teams tour is where I, um, we see all the major sites. Um, and uh, it's a, it's a, you know, a tour that's kind of from the Christian faith background where we walk through all of these paradigms about family uh, in parallel with really experiencing the um, the history in all the different places. And then as a part of that tour, um, everyone spends uh, a Sabbath dinner at a uh, Orthodox Jewish family's home. So I want you to just see and experience that around their table in Israel, uh, around families that have been doing this for so many generations. And so we do a lot of debriefing and a lot of training during during the tour. So yeah, that's a great way to get yourself immersed in, in this paradigm. Oh, that's awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, um, Jeremy, is there anything else that we missed or that's really important that you would like to share as we close today? I don't think so. Thank you guys for having me. I, yeah, please um, continue to um, spread the word about the, the, the value and beauty and design of multi-generational family. Thank you guys for what you guys are doing. Awesome. Thank you. And keep up the great work. Um, Jeremy, just love the tools and resources and it's so needed and so important today. So um, if you are listening, please go ahead and plug into familyteams.com. You can also find us at themoneyadvantage.com if you're interested in finding out more about how to make your money work most effectively to create that multi-generational legacy and enjoy your money today. And I will just say in closing, please remember success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, Click the send my free guide button right now and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on the moneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at the moneyadvantage.com. Or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. 
Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated, and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.